My name is Brendan Schuchart, and today on the Nova Soma, we'll be talking to Race Bannon. Race is a writer and a longtime member of San Francisco's BDSM community. He's the author of several books, including Learning the Ropes, A Basic Guide to Safe and Fun BDSM Lovemaking. But more importantly, I wanted to talk to Race because he has been in a 19 years long three-way relationship. And when I was living in San Francisco in my own three-way relationship, he was something of a role model for me. Race, in a lot of ways, legitimized and helped me intellectualize some life choices I was making in my early to mid-20s. We have a really great conversation. We don't touch on nearly half the things I'd like to. He's a brilliant kind, loving man who cares passionately about his city and his community and uh, who goes out of his way to mentor young faggots. And I'm really excited to be sharing this conversation with him, with you. So without further ado, here is Grace Pan. Hi, Grace. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Busy day. I'm going to see Margaret Cho tonight, which will be fun. Oh, excellent. I'm a huge fan of hers. You know, um, the rapper Snoop Dogg has this web interview show that he does. This is genius. And he had her on once. And they had one of the most interesting conversations about women and persons of an Asian descent, like in comedy. It's fascinating, very interesting. Yeah, I admire the work she does because she walks her talk. And, yeah, totally. um, a lot of people don't always, and she also speaks for a constituency that doesn't always get a voice in entertainment at that level. She's also incredibly thoughtful, though. Like, there's a lot of celebrities, especially celebrities who, like, you know, society thrusts on them that they are the voice of a group of people. She doesn't just say anything to appease anybody. She has well-thought-out views. She has both well thought out views. She has a you know lightning bright brain. She's got a very ethical and moral center, and she has guts because although she's never said this directly to me, my guess is that a lot of people over the years have said, "Oh, you're, that's a career limiting move. Don't do that." And she has always said, "No, this is the right thing to do, and it's what I want to do, and I'm going to do it, and let the chips fall where they may." And turns out that people kind of like that, and she's probably as big a star as she ever has been at this point, but I think it goes to show you that you can be uniquely yourself and not make apologies for that, and if you do that in a in the right way, it doesn't have to hurt your career in any way. You know, uh, I was about to launch into a probably a long and intricate story that's all about me, so but we aren't here to talk about me. We're here to talk about uh, you. Uh, let's start with where you grew up. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. I was born in 1954, and I was actually born when my birth mother and my father were living in Old Town of Chicago. And then at a very young age, I think probably about two, they moved to the southern suburbs. I was raised through high school there, went away to college, uh, third semester of college, actually moved back into Chicago, so I lived a large chunk of my life in Chicago. I'm a Midwest guy. I, um, I've never had the opportunity to go to Chicago, but did you meet Jordan the other night? I did meet him briefly. Yes, I did. He's a nice Midwestern boy. My mom is very pleased with him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's with yeah. you. Of course he's a nice guy. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, of course. All right, so you grew up in 
Chicago and then moved to the suburbs. Tell us about your youth. What was your childhood like? My childhood was an interesting mix of wonderful and not so wonderful. Probably the most wonderful part is my father. He died last year, but he was without a doubt the best father anyone could possibly have. If you tried to get the powers that be create a father for you, I I don't think it would be better than what I had. I had a birth mother who was pretty horrific in many ways, and I do not have any ill will toward her because Mm -hmm. I actually think there was a lot of undiagnosed mental illness that was going on, and she would not ever get it addressed, which was the problem, and eventually my parents divorced. But I honestly, that bad part of it was completely tempered by a father who raised me, essentially. I was an only child, essentially raised me by himself, and I think did a pretty damn good job. And I thank whoever... Um, every day that I had a father like him. So my growing up was mostly in the southern suburbs. I went to Catholic grammar school. That was another not-so-great part. Um, But uh, did get a good education, and I managed to avoid being influenced too strongly by the religion and just took the education and ran. (laughs) Was that difficult? You know, when I was in catechism class at the age of, I think, seven, I was seven or eight or whenever you go to catechism class first, which in... The Catholic religion is kind of where they begin to indoctrinate the young, quite frankly. Um, so I'm in catechism class, and I'm asking the nun why women can't be priests. <laughs> that's kind of how I rolled even back then. And she gave me a very pat answer that that's not in God's plan or whatever her pat answer. She's a lovely nun, actually. I had nothing but nice things to say about the nuns who taught me. They were really lovely people. But... Um, it never it never made sense, and a lot of the stuff didn't make sense to me, even at a young age. And I, I thought, well, I, these nuns are lovely people teaching me and doing all these wonderful things. And from a young person's view, they were doing all the hard work, not the priests. Why couldn't they be priests? They were doing all this stuff, and it just didn't make sense. So at a very early age, it, it just didn't jive with me. And so uh, I went through the motions, and then at the age of about... 12 or 13, my dad sat me down and and said, I've taken you to church every Sunday since you were a baby, and I think you're a man now, and now you get to decide, is this what you want to keep doing? And I said, no, I do not. And he never questioned me, and I never set foot inside a Catholic church again, except maybe for a wedding or two. You know, it's funny. I I was Mormon. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, you know. When your parents are hippies, you have limited avenues for rebellion. So uh, <laughs> I left the church before I even really knew that I was gay. But I couldn't reconcile my notion of what God was with the fact that women couldn't have the priesthood. And I, I would ask a similar question. And it was always the same, well, God has a plan. And uh, my internal feminist was just too strong to like make those two ideas work in my head. Interesting that we both rejected, shall we say, um, based on misogyny before we probably were conscious of the homophobia. I find that interesting because at a young age, even though I knew I was gay at a very young age, the, the misogyny was what was front and center and so obvious, whereas the homophobia was much more the undercurrent and not so obvious. And so it, maybe it makes sense that the misogyny would be the thing that we butted heads with first. Yeah. When I was in the church, I don't think I really saw the misogyny until I started asking the question. Because, you know, 
that soft oppression we all grow up with, you know, like it's just background noise. And pulling on that thread unraveled all these rules that we have to follow. Why do we have to follow these rules? I went through the exact same thing. I don't really consider myself an atheist. I consider myself an agnostic. I know that many don't differentiate them too much. I do. To me, atheism is a sort of assuredness that it's one right, way. that I don't have. Yeah. And faith is an assuredness that it's some way. And they're both belief. And, and agnosticism feels like that logical middle ground where it's, I don't really know. And right. the, the, the flip side of the I don't really know is I don't think it's important for me to know. I think as long as I live as good a life as I know how to live and treat myself and others with as much respect and dignity as I can and leave the world maybe a little better place than when I entered, um, then everything should take care of itself, no matter what I believe. So that's how I operate. I operate in kind of a um, secular, ethical way versus anything based on faith, because I think, for me personally, that's a much stronger ethical center than being told that I'm supposed to be a certain way based on a religion. Right. I, I agree completely. There's a part of me that misses the certainty of feeling like there was a plan and that there was a place for me in it and that the ending had been decided and everything was going to be okay. That was incredibly comforting to me. But I think in a way, not having a plan ultimately is more rewarding because if nothing you do matters, then all that matters is what you do. And Oh, you um, should put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> I'm write that down sure. <laughs> write that down sometime and think about that that's a really great quote um, uh, I'm not entirely sure it's mine but uh, um, I've been saying it I think for a very long time yeah I really I think you know that uh, if there is no face dad looking out for you or like judging you then really like that imbues your decisions with more value and not less, you know, it is even more important to make the lives of the people around you better and easier. I am more impressed with people who develop good character because they know internally they should develop good character because you should be a good person and treat others well than someone who feels coerced into that kind of behavior, which is what some feel because some deity or religion told you to do so. And and I'm not saying that all religious people only develop good character because of their religion, but I think in many instances, that's their argument for it, that how could you possibly have a moral world without religion? And I actually, in all honesty, believe we would, at this stage of human evolution, we would have a more moral world um, where religion not in it. I am not a Pollyanna, though, and I do not believe that we're going to have a world without religion. I do think we'll have a world with less religion over time, and I think you will see the importance of religion deprecate over the decades significantly. I think, actually, that religion is very valuable and important. I go to radical fairy gatherings, um, mm-hmm. and there will be these elaborate rituals, like around the raising of the maypole or the lighting of a, a campfire. And... You know, uh, I don't really believe that the spirits of the earth and the fire and the water and the air are <laughs> literally blessing this place. But there is something undeniably profound and valuable in sharing in that ritual with my community, with 500 other gay men. 
I don't disagree with you, actually. I think there is tremendous power in ritual. We need to find a way to get the valuable things out of religion that are good for society and divorce them from the, you know, the, the, the crazy fairy tales that, that, uh, <laughs> that cause so much damage, you know? Like if we can somehow make like a civic religion or a cultural, that community, that like bringing together of rich and poor and that, yeah, I think society needs that. I don't think we do well without it, even though there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. If we can get rid of that baggage, we'd be. I think that I think that's better than than throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater. I think it honestly depends on how dogmatic the religion or spiritual philosophy is. Um, if you look at something like Buddhism, which um, is, I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, but if you were to you know, put a gun to my head and say, you must declare a, a spiritual line of thought, I'd probably say, okay, I pick Buddhism, because <laughs> it right. probably aligns as close to my values as anything. It's very peaceful. It's actually not deity-centric at all. Um, it's much right. more about living a good life. I don't say I agree with everything that classic Buddhism says either, sure. but I do think the more dogmatic a religion, the less useful it is to society. And when you mentioned the fairies and you mentioned um, uh, essentially pagan rituals, which is what you were describing, sure. I have never, ever once had a smidgen of feeling that I come away from a pagan person or a pagan ritual of which I've been part of or witnessed to many times and felt like in any way, shape, or form it has damaged anyone present or would damage anyone because they knew of it or about it or believed in what it was about. I've never felt that, not once. Um, I can't say that about Catholicism, and I can't say that about certain other religions. So yeah, I do think there's a qualitative difference between the religions, and I'm not going to dissect that here, but I do think there is a qualitative difference, and they are not all the same, and therefore I think have different kinds of impact on the world. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's also, though, important to remember that even like the Taoists and Buddhists used to fight religious wars and in yep. ancient China, like it's that DNA is almost built into religion, just like in the very concept of it. And maybe it just yep. like becomes more virulent at different times in a religion's history. I think yeah, I just the, talked myself out of wanting religion. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the absolutism of religion. And I think that um, therein lies, the, and, and of course the fundamentalists are the absolutists of, of each religion. And there are Buddhists and Taoists, absolutists and, and fundamentalists, just like there are in any other um, religion or philosophical thought. And it is that absolutism that is the problem. It is not the metaphorical representations. It is not the story-driven, um, right. you know, um, moral directives. It is not those things. The people that appreciate them for those and understand their built-in flaws because everything's flawed – but it's the absolutists, and that's where we have problems, and that's where the wars happen, and that's where, um, you know, the really dramatic conflicts, you know, culturally. And, and well, holy wars don't happen in times and places where the church and the state are not in some way intertwined. Religious wars are political wars. Even, like, those wars between Buddhists and Taoists were because rival dynasties had embraced Buddhism or Taoism. The Crusades, on top of being a religious pilgrimage, and a genocidal massacre was also a land grab. Yep. Like, uh, a lot of a lot of religion 
has uh, control roots in it. Um, you know, even if you go back to Catholicism and and um, you know the institution of marriage was actually uh, um, implemented within the ch- within the Catholic Church as a means to ensure land gets passed on to the right people. So, um, and I guess that's my understanding, having read some history of the Catholic Church. Um, so I think there's uh, there's so many practical reasons why they do what they do in the name of, oh, God told us to do this, which, no, you adapt it over time, and this is how you continue to control or do whatever you do. And, and so, um, so yeah, I'm, I am, I, I'm a staunch agnostic. Um, I am not a fan of religion generally, um, with the caveats of, you know, that we just talked about. But uh, in my own day-to-day, uh, I, I'm quite happy I eschewed Catholicism at a young age, and... Um, I actually think my life is better for it. Well, let's talk about your uh, post-Catholicism life. Let's talk about your gay life. How old were you when you figured out you were homosexual? And then how did you, how did you become gay? Um, I was not only attracted to other boys, but doing things erotically with other boys at a pretty young age. Um, you know, we're talking eight. Um, so, of course, a child of eight growing up in the Midwest suburbs does not have a word to put on that. And all they know is that I'm attracted to the boy next door or across the street or some kid I met in school or I keep looking at these kids in the locker room or whatever it might be. But I acted on those and I seem to have been able to find other boys that obviously felt the way I did. And so I, over the years from, um, you know, eight all the way through high school, I had some people in my circle that I interacted with erotically, and it became more and more conscious over time. Um, and I'd say by junior year of high school in my head, I was labeling, labeling myself a bisexual, and by freshman year of college, I had labeled myself as gay. That's not to say that bi is a pathway to gay. We know that controversy. That's not what I'm saying. But it is what I used as a type of mental internal justification for who I was. Oh, I must be bi. But the truth was I I was a gay man who could function with women and did, but that wasn't where my heart was. And so, yeah, I... I by the end, certainly, of my freshman year, I was not only out and openly gay, but had my first real gay boyfriend. And uh, how did you meet your first real gay boyfriend? I was going to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, about 100 miles south of Chicago, where I was raised. We had a little gay bar in Champaign-Urbana, but I wanted more than that. And I was also always drawn to... Um, a certain kind of hyper-masculine thing, a.k.a. at the time, the leather community. And so I would go into Chicago on a fairly regular basis, almost every weekend I could. And I would drive in, and I ended up um, having sex with this much older guy than me at the time uh, on a regular basis, and turns out he was a gay bar owner. And he owned a bar in Chicago called The Glory Hole, I'll let you figure out what kind of bar that was. 
A glorious bar from the sound. That was a glorious bar. It really was. And it was a sleazy neighborhood bar that I absolutely loved. And um, it was in Old Town on Well Street. And so I was boinking with this guy for a while. And as happens when a lot of um, older men are boinking young, you know, 18-year-old guys, um, they eventually tire of the 18-year-old guy and want him to move on. And he was a very (laughs) lovely man. And so... Um, I'm sitting in the bar with him, and in walks this guy, and it happened to be someone that was staying with this man I was having sex with. And he points to him, and he goes, now that's the kind of guy you should marry. So I did. Um, (laughs) I met him. We had sex. We didn't leave each other's side for two weeks. And we were partnered for 14 years. So it was literally that fast. And um, he ended up um, dying in the 90s um, of AIDS, and uh, uh, which was one of the hardest moments of my life. Um, but uh, he was a remarkable guy. We had a great 14 years. And, um, you know, sometimes you meet people in the oddest of ways. And I met my first partner because the guy I was having sex with at the time was trying to pass me off to someone else. <laughs> oh, by the way, I ended up I ended up bartending at that same bar. Amazing. I ended up uh, going there so much that eventually, and I, I knew I had to leave college. It's a long story, but I ended up going into college as a pre-law major, and I came out a dance major. And um, long story. Um, and uh, being a dance major, being college and a dance major will not ever give you a dance career. You'll end up teaching dance in high school, and that's about it. So I decided that I was going to leave and go really seriously study dance professionally and um, move back into Chicago. I ended up getting a job at the bar, the same bar, living above the bar with this man I used to have sex with and my current partner, <laughs> and who had just left the seminary because he was a Jesuit um, brother about to be ordained, and he left that before he was going to get ordained. And uh, the... The age of drinking then had been lowered in Illinois to 19, and so on my 19th birthday, I, I'm behind the bar, and I look at my boss, and I say, it's my birthday. Wish me happy birthday. He says, how old are you? I don't even know exactly. He goes, I'm 19. <laughs> and he went a little white, and I said, well, I'm legal now. Um, they didn't check IDs quite as well back then when they were employing you. <laughs> I was bartending at a gay bar underage. That is... That's fantastic. That would never happen now. No, would never happen today. It was a very different era around employment. People were very casual about hiring people. This was what year? Oh, let's see. We're talking 73, 74. And when did you come to move to San Francisco? I took a path of Chicago to New York. Did New York for two, three years um, Mm -hmm. as part of my dance career at the time. Um, so, uh, did that, did the whole New York thing, then actually, uh, followed my same first lover who had moved to LA and we had actually separated physically, but I was drawn back to him again in Los Angeles. He had moved to LA cause he didn't want to move back to New York uh, where he's from. And, uh, so I'd spent LA, was in LA for 14 years. And then in 1994, I moved to San Francisco. So San Francisco is a city I have lived in longer than any other place on earth. Wow. It's a magical place. 
I'm happy that I left when I did, and Los Angeles has been very, very good to me this time around, but it's just not home, you know? It's, it's, it's full of opportunity, and I'm very happy here, but there's like this distant melody always in the back of my head, and it's, it's San Francisco singing to me. I'm going to have to move back someday. It is a magical place uh, in spite of um, the economic challenges that are happening because it's such an expensive place to live today. And, yeah. and the stark reality is that many of my friends are moving from San Francisco because of the cost. Even in spite yeah. of that, it still maintains a certain magic. Um, it's, it's a liberal bastion. It's a bubble. You can be who you want to be. It, it, it's, it's unlike any city I've ever lived in. It is my favorite city I have lived in. Uh, were I to leave San Francisco, which certainly could be a reality someday, I don't, you know, I, I never know what may happen. I actually think Los Angeles might be my um, number one on my list to go back to L.A. Yes. I don't think I'd leave West Coast, and um, I don't think Portland's a good fit for me, and I don't think Seattle would be a good fit for me, uh, and I don't think San Diego would be a good fit for me either. So that what does that leave you? That leaves you L.A. Right. Um, and I had 14 great years in L.A. It was just time to leave when I was ready to leave and do something new. But but uh, I could see that as a potential place again. But who knows what the future may bring? Um, uh, I grew up in San Diego, um, oh. and San Diego do, does have a very robust leather community. I only kind of know that because I have a few friends that live down there. And, um, actually, I know that because I was in a film that um, showed at San Diego's Gay and Lesbian Film Festival called Interior Leather Bar, and um, they had a huge party for us at San Diego's Eagle. Like, it was, it was, uh, everybody in the bar bought me a shot. I don't think I've ever been so <laughs> I've been pretty drunk, and I don't think I've ever been that drunk. By the way, I, I happen to have loved Interior Leather Bar. I saw it at the Castro Theater when it uh, was part of the film festival here, and um, I love it. I um, I actually found it authentic to a lot of my own personal experiences because I was involved in leather. As soon as I was out, I was in leather. I literally came out into leather um, uh, almost instantly, so it, it it resonated with me in a really kind of powerful way. That's fascinating to me that you came out into, into leather. In a way, I was encouraged to avoid leather when I came out. Um, I was saying this to somebody else the other day. When I came out, it was 96. I would think I was 16. Mm-hmm. I came out the same year as Ellen. Um, and <laughs> nobody talked about HIV. And what they did say was basically, don't have sex with older guys. Don't have sex with guys that are in the, like, in the leather. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how you stay safe. Sadly, I think that was not an uncommon message people heard. It was an accident, of course, but it's but yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I did those things and I managed to get infected anyway. So yeah, it was not uh, a useful piece of advice ultimately. Yeah, I've um, actually um, since you mentioned being paused, I I've been positive since the mid '80s, and because I know my sexual history pretty well at that point. 
I and, and other doctors are pretty sure that I was likely positive long before that. So, uh, so yeah, I've been uh, positive since the mid-'80s myself, since pretty close to the beginning of it. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, and I'm healthy as a horse, so it's all good. <laughs> I mean, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear it. I, uh, um, I've been positive for a decade, 2005. It's crazy to be... That a decade gone by? Is that what you mean? The, the, the decade has gone Like, first of all, that a decade has gone by. I look back on that kid... And uh, who thought he knew everything, and who had his world like fucked apart by finding out he was HIV positive. And I like barely, like I have trouble remember being him. You know, it, like it feels so distant. And ten years ago, the idea that there would be a pill that would prevent people from getting HIV, it was a ridiculous notion. Like, you could not have convinced me that that is the thing that was going to be happening anywhere in the near future. And that if you would have told the me that had just become HIV positive, that 10 years later, I would be able to see the end of HIV on the horizon. I don't know if I would have believed you. And I believe that that is indeed true. I mean, there's there's a wonderful uh, uh, collaborative initiative going on here in San Francisco. And, and I will admit, and I'm, I always acknowledge that I know I live in terms of HIV savvy, um, progressive treatment and prevention methodologies that I live in a bit of a bubble. The San Francisco mm-hmm. model has historically, from the beginning, been the model that most other places have replicated. I think in large part because we are a progressive and liberal bubble and people talk about um, sex and mm-hmm. HIV and things and public health in ways that they don't always elsewhere, so it's easier to make these things happen. But we, do, we have a thing called getting to zero, and we honestly believe that we are on a path toward essentially zero transmissions in San Francisco. Uh, we always know there's going to be outliers until there's actually a vaccine or a cure, that we know that there is going to be outliers. But we believe, based on current trends and what we're doing in this city and what is beginning to happen elsewhere, New York State is a very good example of a state oh. where it's happening, um, where the combination of treatment and prevention, bringing people's viral loads to undetectable, therefore not, not able to transmit the virus, Coupled with PrEP, um, anyone who is sexually active in any way, shape, or form in um, one of the demographics, um, frankly, I think should absolutely be considering PrEP. Uh, So between those two things, I think we are on the cusp of the ability to, certainly in urban centers like San Francisco, get transmission rates to essentially zero. And it's why I'm such a proponent of treatment and as prevention and such a proponent of PrEP because I come from an era where if my first partner who died could have had a pill and known he wouldn't have to die or even be sick or be on a meds for the rest of his life, that, you know, for that, he would have taken that pill. He would have lined up for weeks. It would have been like an iPhone release. There would have been lined up. <laughs> They would have been lined up around the block. They would have taken work. They, have quit, they would have quit their jobs to line up and get that pill. And that's what's so yeah. remarkable about the pushback on PrEP is that if this had been available back then, everyone would have clamored for it. So it's interesting how emerging now and you, the, some of the pushback that's happened it, it seems so bizarre in light of where we've come from. 
Oh my God, the pushback and the moralizing. Uh, somebody the other day on the Facebooks told me that, uh, uh, oh, then, uh, he said into the conversation that, um, uh, essentially that, uh, he was, um, that everybody else had to do their part and get married and be good monogamous gays and no more of this prep talk because that's just foolishness. And I'm, I've clearly <laughs> bent his words and tone beyond their original. But, uh, uh, that was his point. You know, that he, and he was, he took a lot, like I told him, nobody asked you to martyr yourself on the cross of respectability. Like, this is a choice you made, don't put it on me. Um, and not only like, that, that messaging is completely contrary to the factual landscape around HIV transmission. That's what's so bizarre. Right now, the majority, the vast majority of HIV transmissions are taking place within relationships. They are not with hookups and they are not with anonymous people. They're within relationships. So, and couple that with the fact that we know that monogamy is a veneer that is very quickly pierced by almost anyone, including gay men, and we know that over time, the vast majority of gay male couples choose non-monogamy of some sort. Research bears that out. So put that all together, and what he is saying is so contrary to the actual landscape of where we live that it's kind of laughable. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought all of that up, because it's definitely one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about. When, uh, you know, We met in San Francisco, and I think we met when I was working at a different light bookstore originally. Long time ago. Yeah. And I think we started talking because I was in a three-way relationship and you were the only other person that I had ever met at that point (laughs) that um, was in a three-way relationship. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you, you were, you were a role model to me. You were, um, I could see, that I was not crazy, that I could love two people, that three people could be in a relationship together, and 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 that wasn't a bullshit idea. And no, not at all. I, <laughs> I, um, I, I do remember those conversations, and um, I, I guess I didn't realize they had that kind of profound impact, and that makes me feel really good. But um, uh, I've been I've been in my my current triad for um, 19 years um, last month, um, and been partnered with one of those two men for 24 years. And um, we moved here from LA together, and um, have many other people in my life that I, you know, have incredibly deep caring for. I do not believe that human beings are inherently built, inherently wired to only love one person at a time. That is not to say that it's a directive, meaning you must love more than one person at a time. By the way, I actually think we all do because we have one word for love and we have this word like, and we do not have much in between. And there are so many variations and permutations of love that we get all mixed up because we only have the one word to use for it. There's the guy I have sex with that I'm very, very very close to and I have a certain kind of love with, Um, but then there's somebody over here who's really a partner kind of love, and then there's somebody over here who's a kind of brotherly love, but I would fall on a sword for that person. There is, And yet we lump it with one word, and that's kind of sad. 
um, that our yeah. vernacular is so limited. Um, well, I think that's been a feature of the environment for so long. You know, like society demanded that love be a very limited thing for a very long time, I think, in Western culture. Definitely in, like, the descendants of Victorian England, which we are amongst. You know, like, the Greeks had, I think, six words for love. Like, you know, they had nuances. I find that English is really bad at describing the queer experience. I have, and I think many gay men have, a family of gay men with whom they have a web of ex-lovers and roommates and boyfriends and, you know, like friendly rivals. And it is so much more than friendship. And so I I say family all the time. But there's no elegant way to describe that, to describe those relationships. Like my gay ex-boyfriend, brother, sometimes lover. You know, like this. English is a very useful language, but it's indelicate when it comes to feelings, really. I I completely agree. And I actually don't think that um, it's an accident that our language is not so elegant at, at feelings considering its origins. So that doesn't surprise me that we, it's interesting because the English language in terms of the number of words in it, I believe has the most words of any world language. I may be wrong, but I know it's got a lot compared to many. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet for the more um, nuanced aspects of our feelings and emotions and our internals, very limited. So I agree with you. When I describe uh, my relationship life, I say I have a number of people in my life, some very, you know, close and intimate and, and frequent and some less so. I love them on different levels. They are part of a, uh, an inner or an extended family, and that's about as good as I can get with describing it because uh, otherwise I'd have to describe each relationship independently because no two are alike. Even when you're in a triad, you essentially have four relationships, each person with themselves and yes! together. Ah, oh, my God, I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's true. There's four relationships going on, and yes. they don't all function the same, and no. um, you have to or accept that. Or at the same that. time. <laughs> or at the same time. And um, and I know people with you know four or five intimate partners who all consider themselves partners. I know certainly one here in San Francisco of, of five of them, and they've been together quite a long time. And... Um, Imagine, you know, the dynamics amongst five. Uh, I remember years ago, I was in Guerneville. I was up at the Russian River, and I was staying at a resort there, and there were these guys down by the pool, and they were kind of romping and connecting in a way that looked like more than friends. They were all these very kind of nice-looking middle-aged men. And four or five of them, I can't remember, the exact number. So I and someone else were just talking to them, and they said something about, uh, you know, you guys look like more than friends. I go, oh, we are. And I can't remember if they said four or five of, but they said, we are five of ten. And we sort of went, what? And they said, there are ten of us. There are ten of us. We live in this big place back in Illinois, um, way outside of, of Chicago, and this sort of big estate kind of thing. And we're all we're all professionals. We're all you know we all have our own individual lives, but we have this kind of big family of ten relationship, and we all consider ourselves in a relationship with each other. I was blown away, and this was many years ago. 
So that's that's the biggest configuration I'd ever actually encountered. Um, I did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that interesting? I that's a. Uh, I mean, <laughs> my brain just goes to like all the practical problems. Like, um, that's a very long Christmas list, and uh, uh, and a delicate Christmas, like, because you know you have to give everybody presents. And basically, like, you have to give everybody a really good present. Well, and, or you do, or you do what we do, and we don't exchange presents. Oh. <laughs> I have an exchange. I feel present. like. Uh, I love giving gifts. I, 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 I take a special pleasure in finding just the right thing for somebody that I care about. I do. I actually like giving things to people. I'm bigger on mm-hmm. it. In, like, I'm much more likely to buy them show tickets or whatever. I like experiential things. Um, sure, but, yeah. um, but I don't do it around Christmas. It's just not, it doesn't resonate with me. And I, and you're talking to somebody who raised, Raised as a child, Christmas was like the day. Um, I would, my dad would shower me with stuff when I was younger, being an only child. But as an adult, it's never really much resonated with me. And um, I like the social part and the, the, the getting together with people and all that kind of stuff. But the gift part never really strongly resonated. Um, I'd rather give gifts other times. But, you know, whatever works. And part of it is also, like, I love to just, like, rip into a – Beautifully wrapped package. There's, it really feeds some primal American capital, late capitalist part of me. <laughs> Stand in the, the pile of shredded golden green tissue like a concrete hero. Uh, you know, we were talking about polyamory and I, um, uh, and for those listening who don't, you know, know what polyamory is, it's, it's, um, intimate love connections with more than one person at a time. Um, it is, Without a doubt, it is a quickly growing relationship option. And there's a couple ways I know this. If, if I actually have belonged to organizations, and, and um, one of them does a lot of research around alternative sexualities and polyamory. And mm-hmm. um, we know that the number of grants going to university research for polyamory is rather high, whereas some of the other topics we were, we were pushing were not so much. Um, also, I was part of a group that used to track media quite a bit, and we would track how often certain alternative sexualities and polyamory were mentioned in the media. And polyamory has skyrocketed in terms of the amount of number of mentions, number of articles, um, number of positive versus negative articles has escalated dramatically. It's made the cover of some significant magazines. Um, it is now a viable relationship alternative that is growing and I believe will continue to grow over time. It by no means forces anyone into that configuration, but it gives those who have a predilection toward it or a desire for it that option in a much more open way than once happened. So I think polyamorous relationships are both here to stay, and I think you're going to see them grow. And I think you're even going to see another phase that will happen, which in the... um, polyamory relationship thinking world um, they some kind, sometimes call uh, they label it relationship anarchy um, and the anarchists in my life will love that word but it's a word that's kind of been attached to a way of thinking that you should be able to, to love and have intimate relationships with anyone you choose period uh-huh. that is sure. relationship anarchy and um it is a very sort of radical form of 
polyamory, essentially, um, mm-hmm. where much of polyamory still functions within a lot of rules and a lot of agreements and a lot of things, and that absolutely works for some people. But for many other people, it doesn't work so well, and they fall more into this relationship anarchy camp. And um, I don't think uh, any of it is better. I don't think monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, one is better than the other. But we're starting to see the smorgasbord of relationship options put in front of people, and that's what's lovely. That's what's amazing is that they get to choose now more so than have it chosen for them. I I agree with you. I think that it's uh, it's amazing. I'm you know I'm thinking right now like how thankful I am that my mom, you know, like my family was actually really accepting of it in a slightly bemused way. <laughs> you know they they uh, they rolled with it. I didn't get hardly any pushback. I wonder. I see. I see this kind of legitimizing of polyamory happening. I see a lot of like op eds and there's a more positive tone around it. I'm also seeing a lot of pressure emanating from within the gay community for gays to get married, for gays to, like, to assimilate. I think there's a really interesting tension between those two things. And I wondered, like, like what what do you think is causing this polyamory moment? And how, how do you see it playing out against the march to equality that we are experiencing in the gay community? Oh, I had a very... Uh, schizophrenic view around marriage equality because on the one hand I do believe it's a form of assimilation I do think that it is kind of giving into the man and, and the practical realities that I really wish we didn't have to and at the same time it just doesn't work for me I mean I w- I've always said I will get married if because I have to get married so that one of my partners stays on my medical benefits or something like that I would get married only for practical reasons, never for romantic or other reasons whatsoever. It has, no, it doesn't resonate with me in any way, shape, or form, and never has. So I've always been kind of, eh, the marriage equality, whatever. Um, I was one of those people that sort of didn't like attaching the word marriage to it. I really liked civil unions because I wanted to be different than straight people. But I know many disagree, including many of my close friends. Now that we're here, I find it interestingly ironic that we are – achieving marriage equality in the United States at a time when the rate of marriage is declining. And the rate of marriage is actually declining in uh, nine sort of industrialized countries, um, U.S. and Europe, that they've been tracking for the last many years. Um, I saw a wonderful statistic, and I don't know if it still holds up, but in Switzerland, if the rate of decline of marriage were to stay at the pace that it was at, by the year 2050, not a single person in the country would get married. Wow. Now, again, that was a slice-in-time bit of data of trend, uh, so they were right. extrapolating that from the trend. But the point is that uh, certainly in the U.K., where marriage rates are down significant percentage. United States, mm-hmm. they are down. They're down in um, uh, countries that are a little more like the United States in terms of diversity and culture, et cetera. So I think that it's kind of ironic that a lot of people are choosing not to marry at a time when we can. So that doesn't go unnoticed in my mind. I think they've seen the uh, the downsides uh, culturally of marriage equality begin to happen. There's a lot of people who say, well, now we have to behave and now we have to be like them. And that, that I see this popping up fairly frequently. Um, yeah. I, 
I really hope we can buck that and maintain our unique culture and not be just like everyone else because I don't really want to be like everyone else. Well, I, I have a kind of complex thought on this. I think that there is a whole segment of the white gay community, a sizable slice. And let's just go ahead and say of the white gay community that is really excited to be quote-unquote white, you know. They are really excited to assimilate into the American middle class. It's funny. I, I, I grew up with absolutely no pressure to get married. You know, once, once my gayness really began to like display itself when I was in high school, um, I was conscious that I did not get the kind of soft, you know, like, like I said, my parents are hippies, but like, even then, there was this pressure on my brothers to meet a nice girl and settle down, you know, which I received very little. My fiance, on the other hand, is four years younger than me, and even though he was out at a fairly young age, it was always expected that he was going to get married, like find a guy, settle down. Like, kind of never was a question for him. I'm fascinated that the gay, the gay guys, many of the gay guys who came up after me have this pressure, like this pressure to get married that, um, that I never experienced. So I say, kind of say all that because I think maybe a large part of the gay community is going to stop being a part of the gay community or will only be tangentially related to it. I think that will leave a more radical queer community on the other side of it. But you know, like, so I'm like, I never expected to get married. Uh, when when Jordan proposed to me, um, I that was kind of awesome. That was incredibly like that was the romantic part to me. I have very little romance tied up in the notion of marriage itself. For me, like I think marriage is a really there's a part of me that is excited to stand up in front of my family and my community and say, we are a partnership, we are a team, we are a family. You know, like, this is the unit of, this is the building block of something, and and you are all a part of that in some way. Um, yeah, it's another ritual for me that I think is beautiful and valuable, and it's like, but not romantic? <laughs> Does that make any no, sense? No, I, I like, it, get, you know, gays and lesbians had commitment ceremonies for years and years and years, partly for that reason. You know, for me, like, I feel like marriage should not, yes, it's a romantic partnership, but, like, making it entirely a romantic partnership is impractical and silly. Like, it's also a financial partnership and a political partnership, you know, if, if the Clintons are any model. Without a doubt. I mean, a lot of our um, our social structures are built around the marriage paradigm, um, our benefits, social security, you know, social perceptions, um, you know, right to visitations, you name it, is built around the marriage paradigm, which I think is quite frankly, messed up. I think that that is a horrific way to structure a society, but it is. I think all of that should be completely disconnected because essentially what we're saying is we worship at the altar of people in a relationship, and anyone who chooses not to be is somehow less than or chooses any kind of other way of organizing their relationships. So it's messed up at its core, It is, it, you know, but it is what we've got. So I'm always, I've kind of been of the opinion that, well, if the right exists, I get that gays and lesbians should have the right to marry who they choose, and I, I applaud that. Um, I also am um, 
you know, I've had discussions with some other fairly high-ranked um, LGBT leaders, you know, national movement, international movement leaders. And one of the things that they've also said is that crossing the marriage equality threshold in and of itself, they felt was, many of them felt, well, yeah, it was important to some, but what it does is it pushes that issue to the side and it acts as that wedge that brings us into all the other issues that we really do need to address. Um, and because it was like kind of the big kahuna that until that got resolved, we simply couldn't move forward with other things. And uh, that's certainly the way some people think of it. And I, and I can kind of get that. So I'm kind of glad it, I'm glad it happened. Don't get me wrong. I'm not kind of glad. I am glad it happened. Right. Um, but on a personal level, does it have, does it resonate with me in some romantic, wonderful way? Oh, we can get married. No, it does not. never has. Um, and I think we need to make a place in our society for those for whom it does not resonate. And um, there are some efforts actually beginning to, to underway to, uh, and I don't want to be too preemptive because I know one of the nonprofit organizations nationally that's beginning to work on this, and I don't want to um, stomp on them and, and say something wrong. But they are beginning work uh, to essentially redefine family um, legally so that those who decide to configure their relationships in some way other than the traditional two-person marriage will have the mechanisms by which to do that if they so choose. And I think that's a really worthwhile endeavor. So the more options we can give people, again, that's my whole thing. It's not about saying you must adhere to one way of living or having a relationship or whatever, but everybody should have all the options and all the options should be equally respected. Once again, <laughs> we are in absolute agreement. I think we have, uh, uh, we've been talking for over an hour. Um, I should probably let you go. I know you're a very busy man. This is an excellent spot to the end of the conversation, I think. Okay. Um, Grace, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I, uh, it means a lot to me. Well, Brendan, you're one of the people uh, on the face of the earth that I think is um, nice, bright, insightful, and uh, great writer and communicator and so uh, to be part of this is is a joy for me so anytime um for this or any of your other projects just let me know and i'll be there i um i that means the world to me thank you very much i'm 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 i respect you and admire you a great deal and i'm i'm glad to have you in my life sir you have an excellent afternoon you too have a good day you too i'll talk to you soon bye there you go. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ray Spannon. If you'd like to know more or read some of his writings, you can check out his website, www.racebannon.com. That's R-A-C-E-B-A-N-N-O-N.com. Or you can follow him on Twitter, at BannonRace, B-A-N-N-O-N-R-A-C-E. Until next time. You can do